This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, October 21st, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson, back in the saddle after a relatively short vacation. So delighted to be here and to have all of you along. Every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live. You can listen across our great affiliates. You can also catch the podcast for free on demand every day when the show concludes. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com and wherever you get your podcasts. We are coming to you live from the Tony Snow Studios at Fox News DC. We've got a lineup that is terrific today. We will get to our first guest here in a moment. In the next hour, Brett Bayer will be here talking about his new book, his firsthand experience at the Port of Los Angeles looking at all these huge problems on supply chains firsthand yesterday. We'll ask him about that, plus some really rough approval rating numbers For President Biden, what does that mean? Looking forward to next year, we'll put those questions to Brett Bayer. Josh Krasauer will also be here from National Journal. We'll be handicapping the Virginia governor's race. Some really fascinating developments in that race just in the last few days where the Democrats are at least acting like they're running scared. They do not seem like a confident bunch at the moment. Election day is one week from this coming Tuesday. That'll be November the 2nd. In Virginia. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you stats as we always do. Confirmed cases of COVID in the United States cumulatively 45.2 million. That is a low ball. The real number is much higher. The death toll Americans who have died with or of COVID 731,512. The Dow is down 68 points right now to 35,540. And we'll keep a close eye on that for the next 51 minutes or so ahead of the closing bell. Joining us now is U.S. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican of Texas. And, Senator, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. I want to get your reaction first and foremost, Senator, to a story that broke just within the last few hours this afternoon. This is a scoop from the Washington Free Beacon. And we actually got a hint that this was the case from a guest last week, Christopher Rufo from the Manhattan Institute, who's been really closely watching all issues related to critical race theory. There was this controversy, I'm sure you're aware of it, with the Justice Department putting out a memo and the Attorney General Merrick Garland basically intervening at the DOJ and the FBI on the supposed issue of threats or violence at school board meetings. And this was at the behest, it seemed, of the National Association of School Boards, this organization that had written a letter to the Biden administration asking for this type of insertion, this type of intervention, because of what they 
called or described or framed as some sort of crisis. And what we are now learning, not only is this sort of an outrageous attempted overreach and federal involvement in something that would be at worst a local issue, and there's not a lot of evidence of this type of threat even at the local level, let alone rising to a federal threat to justify FBI involvement. But what we are now uh, learning, and as the Washington Free Beacon is reporting based on emails, there was collusion between this school board's organization and the Biden administration ahead of time before the letter went public. Let me just read to you the opening lines of this piece and then get your reaction. The country's largest school board association collaborated with the Biden White House before sending a controversial letter calling on the FBI to investigate parents as potential domestic terrorists, according to previously unreported emails. Those emails obtained by Parents Defending Education through public records requests and reviewed by the Washington Free Beacon reveal that the NSBA's president and CEO sent the letter to Biden on September 29th without approval from the organization's board. The letter said that some of the acts from some parents at school board meetings across the country could be considered a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. The emails also show that the White House asked the association for examples of threats against school board members days before the attorney general created a task force of officials from the FBI and the Justice Department to determine how to prosecute alleged crimes at school board meetings. The letter makes clear that the White House was aware of this letter before it was released while raising questions about whether the White House colluded with the association on the letter to prompt federal action. Senator, this was already, I think, an alarming story, and now it looks like this was some form of collaboration or collusion between the Biden team and this group to try to paint parents as domestic terrorists, even invoking the Patriot Act. This is not looking organic, sir. This is looking planned. Yeah, Guy, this is unfortunately entirely consistent with the way that the Biden administration and the radical left have been dealing with their their opponents, people who have different points of view, trying to intimidate them, threatening to use federal authorities as, in, as you point out, if this was, if there was anything here, this should be handled at the local level. The FBI and certainly the United States Attorney General and Department of Justice would not in the first instance uh, be weighing in. But you may recall that the President Biden also asked uh, the Director of National Intelligence to report on domestic violent extremists. And then, uh, you know, the question became, who are these people? Are these people exercising their rights under the First Amendment to protest, uh, to gather, to associate with one another? Or were these people committing acts of violence? I just think this is, the, this is cons- entirely consistent, and in this instance, trying to use federal authorities to silence uh, the administration's critics, and uh, it's entirely inappropriate. The attorney general is testifying literally right now live before the House Judiciary Committee on the Senate side of things. Based on this report and some of these actions, do you have questions for the attorney general? 
Absolutely. I, I sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and uh, today we were supposed to get uh, Secretary Mayorkas of the Department of Homeland Security, and you can imagine I had a lot of questions for him about the Biden border crisis. He tested positive for COVID-19, so that's been delayed. But I, I'm looking forward to the Attorney General showing up for an oversight hearing. The Senate Judiciary Committee would have that authority and that jurisdiction. And, and we have a lot of questions, including about this. This uh, abuse of federal authorities to in intervene in basically a school board hearing and how they were being conducted. Senator Cornyn, I want to play for you a soundbite. This is from Speaker Pelosi blaming Republicans for all things wrong in Washington, unsurprisingly. I would just point out to her that Democrats control the House and the Senate and the presidency. So blaming the opposition party for everything might not be an easy sell for many voters. But she specifically pointed out a filibuster that was mounted by the Republican Party on a so-called voting rights bill. Here is how she characterized it. Cut 17. Everything that the congressional uh, Democrats do is our title for the people. But sadly, Senate Republicans continue to stand in the way. Yesterday, yesterday was such a sad day. Senate Republicans voted to aid and abet the most dangerous campaign of voter suppression since Jim Crow as they blocked a vote on the Freedom to Vote Act, hurting their own constituents and dishonoring the sanctity of the vote in our Constitution. The stakes could not be higher. Okay, voter suppression, Jim Crow, dishonoring the Constitution and the right to vote. Senator, your reaction to that, your response to the speaker? Well, what Speaker Pelosi just said is false. And she knows it's false, but that doesn't seem to deter her at all. It also is unconstitutional, uh, this federal, this partisan political takeover of our election systems at the national level. The, the Constitution, as you no doubt know, Guy, reserves to the states the time and manner to conduct elections, not the federal government. It is true that the federal government does have authority to intervene under the Voting Rights Act, where uh, voter uh, suppression is actually proven and not just alleged but this was strictly this was strictly a partisan maneuver to try to p install permanent uh, democratic majorities in the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives uh, just as it was an effort through eliminating the filibuster to try to pack the Supreme Court to make DC and Puerto Rico states each of which would get two Democratic senators. That's what this is all about. I'd like to get your reaction also to a story that sort of popped a little bit in Washington, D.C., very much a Beltway story. It was shot down almost immediately. But there was a rumor, a report out there that at least some conversation had gone down about Senator Joe Manchin, the moderate Democrat from West Virginia, perhaps switching parties or no longer becoming uh, no longer remaining, I should say, a member of the Democratic Party. He said that was BS. He said that didn't happen. He can't control rumors. He's focused on negotiations and that sort of thing. However, just the way he's been treated and his colleague Kirsten Cinema by people on the progressive left and even arguably from leadership in the Democratic Party, if Joe Manchin at some point, looking at his state and the electorate in that state, started to eye the exit sign, at least from the Democratic Party, would Joe Manchin hypothetically be welcome in the Republican Party, in the Republican caucus in the Senate? 
Sure, we would welcome him, um, but I don't believe for a second that this is something he has seriously entertained. Uh, yeah, Joe Manchin is the last Democrat who can be elected, or I think remains elected, in the very red uh, West Virginia. And this is just another demonstration about how intolerant uh, the Democratic Party, the, the ultra-radical left progressive part of their party is to anybody who deviates from their orthodoxy. The problem is that um, they did not get a mandate in 2020, nor did they get the majorities that would go along with the mandate to transform mm -hmm. America, and they're being very frustrated by it. But apparently President Biden's thrown in with the progressives, and it's pretty difficult. This is a very heavy lift to do all by yourself, and that's why they are dependent on people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to help them. And I appreciate the fact that they are thinking for themselves and asking the right questions and insisting upon uh, perhaps a more fulsome bipartisan debate. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're acting as if the election that just happened in 2020 was the 2008 election, right, where Democrats had, what, 59, 60 senators, won this huge wave. They had everything. That was not what happened in 2020, right? President Biden won, but the Senate was 50-50. House Republicans gained double-digit seats to come within, you know, four or five shouting distance of the majority. That is very hard to pass anything sweeping on a partisan level when things are that close, and yet that is exactly what they're trying to do. Do you have, Senator Cornyn, a read on where things stand? Because despite what Pelosi said in blaming Republicans, this is an entirely Democratic game right now. They have to figure out what they can actually push through with only Democratic votes on reconciliation. There's all sorts of disagreement over the sequencing of things, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I saw a quote from, speaking of Manchin, uh, the senator said earlier today that the discussions and the negotiations are nowhere near over. He said this is not happening anytime soon. I know Biden has now intervened. They've talked about bringing the price tag way down below $2 trillion. I mean, it's still a huge amount of money. Is this all noise right now? Do you have any read on this? Do the Democrats have any idea where this is going to end up? Well, as you point out, the, the Congress is almost evenly divided, which common sense would tell you would uh, require uh, some bipartisan buy-in on some of these policies. But I think uh, the Democrats, including the President of the United States, are so fearful of the progressive faction of their party that they throw, they've thrown the so-called moderates under the bus. We saw this on the infrastructure bill that passed with bipartisan uh, majorities in the Senate, and they can't even get a vote on a bill that would clearly pass in the House of Representatives because it's being held hostage to this wild tax and spending spree bill uh, known as reconciliation. So I just think they've missed They've mis, uh, they misidentified um, or misread uh, what the election was about in 2020, and they're overreaching, and they're finding that it's hard to pass this radical agenda when oh, yeah. the country's evenly divided. And when the president is less and less popular by the day, the numbers are not good for him. They're getting worse. Last question briefly, Senator, on immigration. You mentioned that you were all ready to – uh, ask questions of the DHS secretary who had to postpone his appearance before your committee because he tested positive. There are some developments, and we'll get into them later in the program on immigration. In the last few days, the administration finally saying they're going to bring back the return in Mexico or the remain in Mexico policy, I should say. Uh, these uh, reports about late night flights 
of illegal immigrants flying from Texas and the border to other states, dropping off illegal immigrants. What was the most pressing question that you had for Secretary Mayorkas that you were ready to pose to him today? We have about a minute left, Senator. I would have asked Secretary Mayorkas whether he agrees with President Biden's nominee for Director of Customs and Border Protection that their policy of non-enforcement of immigration violations, whether that is a pull factor, which actually incentivizes more illegal immigration. Uh, To his credit, the current police chief in Tucson, uh, the nominee for Customs and Border Protection director said, yes, he thinks that would be a pull factor. I want to know whether Secretary Mayorkas would agree with him and uh, agree with what the, 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 the consequences of that reality pull factor are. Exactly. Right. Does he agree with reality? That would be a fascinating answer from Secretary Mayorkas, and I know you'll have an opportunity to question him uh, when he recovers, which and we, of course, wish him a speedy recovery. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a Republican here on The Guy Benson Show, kicking off the program here today. Senator, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks, Guy. And that is Senator Cornyn on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back as we're just getting started on this Thursday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for listening. So this is interesting. President Biden is going to actually answer some questions this evening. He doesn't do that very often. Certainly not sustained questions. We've been talking about that. It is a strategy to hide him from the press. He's done very few sit-down interviews. At this point in his presidency, he's just done a fraction, a tiny fraction of the interviews that Barack Obama or Donald Trump had done at this point. And of course, that's deliberate, but it's not really sustainable. You cannot hide the president or at least hide behind, you know, remarks where he comes out and reads off of a teleprompter, then walks away. That is the MO. You can run a basement campaign during a pandemic. If your opponent's going to take up all the oxygen in the room, you cannot, as I've said before, run a basement presidency. So tonight, they're going to let him out of the basement. He's going to go on CNN, some home cooking. They've got a a countdown clock over there on CNN. Everyone's so excited to see the president. They might actually break a million viewers tonight. They haven't done that in a while over at CNN, is my understanding, on any of their shows. They've just been in the tank, their ratings, because I guess there's only so much hysteria they can whip up with Trump out of office. Maybe POTUS will put them over a million people tonight. We'll see. But Anderson Cooper will be asking the questions, and I guess they've got – it's like a town hall format. So we'll see how hard-hitting it is. I'm not sure the CNN audience is a group that needs to be converted. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. To support Democrats, that is their base, that is their viewership. But hopefully there will be some pointed, challenging questions for the president because Lord knows he deserves them. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening. I want to play this soundbite from the director of CDC. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who is talking about the continued importance of putting masks on children in schools. You know my position on this. We've talked about it many times. You might even say ad nauseum. Drives me crazy that we have no good, strong data supporting masking kids. We talk about the UK. We talk about the EU. We talk about the general consensus or conventional wisdom in this country, which flies in the face of all of that data, all of those outcomes, and really amounts more to superstition than anything else. But Dr. Walensky doubling down on superstition, and I'll add some more color to this in just a second, but here she is in cut one. As we head into these winter months, we know we cannot be complacent. We also know that um, from previous data that that schools that have had masks in place were three and a half times less likely to have school outbreaks requiring school closure. So right now we are going to continue to um, recommend masks in all schools for all um, people in those schools. And we've talked about how the data that they cite, because the education secretary has done the same thing, it's just not true. The data does not show what they claim it does, and they're not using these studies that they'll sometimes point to. The studies don't use control groups to actually prove the point, whereas we have tons of data about lack of masking across much of Europe among kids, especially younger kids in schools, and having outcomes that have not aligned with the dramatic sky is falling predictions that you hear, particularly on the political left and the establishment in this country. They've been fine. We also told you about Florida. In the first full month of school in Florida, September, while cases plummeted across the state, by the way, cases fell, juvenile cases, so pediatric cases of COVID fell in Districts and counties where there are masks required or masks not required, optional, cases fell among children of COVID an identical at an identical rate. There was no statistical difference at all in the masking schools and the mask optional schools. None. In fact, the counties with the mask optional schools slightly better. The numbers were slightly better. So we hear this, 
from people like Walensky and Biden. And I mean, the list goes on. And they just keep asserting that the evidence supports what they say, even though it doesn't. Charlie Spearing, who's a reporter on Capitol Hill, I think he's now White House correspondent, he tweeted this yesterday with Walensky saying that even if kids get vaccinated per FDA approval, schools should still have mask mandates. And he quoted her, and we just heard that, we cannot be complacent in these winter months coming up. So this is even after the kids get vaccinated. And I know that's a whole separate debate. Should that be required? I am much more skeptical of vaccine requirements for young children in particular than I have been on any other vaccine-related debate throughout COVID. But she's saying even if that is the case, even if you get these kids vaccinated, we're still going to have to have mask mandates, which again begs the question or leads to the question, really demands the question, where is the off-ramp? For these people. And the cynical take is there isn't one. They just want to exert control in perpetuity, indefinitely, on and on and on. And when they say, well, once we do X, then we can get back to normal. And then we do X and we still don't get back to normal. They have new reasons to keep pushing the goalposts further and further away. Of course, it is reasonable for us to say, "Okay, here's the latest one. Say, all right, we're going to want to get the kids vaccinated. Then they're going to start calling for the kid vaccinations to be mandatory. Then you get a bunch of kids vaccinated just to go to school. And then they still show up and say, well, that's good, but it's not good enough. So we're going to keep recommending masking for kids in schools. And at some point, it just is going to take people to stand up and say, no, we're not doing this anymore. Especially given the data and the evidence surrounding children and COVID. I think we should be strategic and smart and not knee-jerk reflexive about what we say no to and where the lines are drawn. And I think, frankly, some people on the right have drawn lines in places that I think are not constructive and counterproductive. On this, school masking, this has been a key issue for me for a long time, not because I'm so fired up about the particular question, but because it's based on non-science and it's sort of this totem for superstition over evidence. And if you now start layering in mask requirements in schools, even on top of vaccine requirements for kids, I mean, it's it's just wild. So that's Walensky talking about the need for masks in schools. The new Surgeon General in the state of Florida is Dr. Joseph Ladapo. He gave a press conference along with DeSantis. They were talking about a host of different COVID-related issues. And this doctor, the Surgeon General of Florida, said, let's ignore for a moment all of the rhetoric and let's look at actual evidence. And he makes the point that we have been making here for weeks, if not months on end. And I'm grateful to hear it stated clearly and openly. This is a public health official in the state of Florida. And I know people are mad about this. Right? People are saying, oh, this is counterproductive. This is dangerous. This is, a conspiracy th- this is a conspiracy theory. It is none of those things. It is factual information based on the evidence and the data that we actually have. And here's what he said in cut three. I want you guys to step back for a moment from what you hear sort of constantly on TV. And just very briefly in terms of the data that, uh, that supports mask use in kids and mandates for masks and kids. 
It is very weak, and that's a fact. But there's a substantial gap between the quality of the data out there supporting masking kids, yielding any benefit for kids whatsoever, factual, and the what we're hearing from some of our public health leadership in other states and nationally. In Florida, we're going to stay close to the data, and we're going to let you know how we feel about the data. And the data do not support any clinical benefit for children in schools with mask mandates. The highest quality data find no evidence of benefit. That is true. I know that will make people angry, and it has made people angry. But it happens to be true, as we've been saying over and over again. And it's not just the UK, and it's not just the EU. It's Florida and other places as well here in the United States. So good for them, again, in Florida, following the actual science here, not the pseudo made-up feel-good science that they just decree from on high. This is what they think would be the case. Masks on kids must work. Therefore, it does work. Now, I played you the clip from Walensky. She made the same mistake that the education secretary did, Cardoza, talking about these studies that supposedly justify mask wearing on little kids as successful in schools. Governor DeSantis, who was also at this event, specifically called out that. I would argue that it is borderline, if not straight up, misinformation from Walensky and from Cardoza. But here is the context from Governor DeSantis himself calling it out and explaining why it's misleading. Cut four. The U.S. Secretary of Education, he, he did like some tweet thread. Like it was like a month ago. And he's like, see, follow the data on the mass. And he was citing, he cited a few studies. He cited one study from North Carolina, which said, forced masking of kids work, but it had no control group because that was required in every school. So they just said it worked without comparing it against what if you didn't do that? And people pointed that out immediately. Then he cited a study from the university or from uh, Wisconsin about it. And the researcher who did the study immediately responded to the tweet and said, we found no uh, conclusive evidence on the forced masking. Uh, and then and basically said that you should not use my study to do that. We made those points. We had a whole monologue, a whole segment about this, but it's just nice to have it reinforced. Especially when the woman who runs the CDC keeps repeating the same talking points about how essential and successful putting masks on seven-year-olds' faces is during this pandemic and how that's going to be required potentially even after kids are vaccinated. It is such a pet peeve. And I have to say, if you listen to the show on a regular basis, you know this is true. I was very conscientious about these things during COVID, especially pre-vaccine availability. We talked a lot about social distancing, hygiene, mask wearing. We were not hostile to those things, right? We were careful. I tried to be consistently speaking out in favor of what seemed to be, at the time, the best scientific advice. Now, a lot of the assumptions in the early days were wrong, right? When we were wiping down groceries and putting up plastic barriers in places when it turned out that actually made the problem worse. People are still doing that, by the way. This is what also drives me crazy. We seem to be stuck in, like, last spring, 
spring of 2020 and some of these practices that have been completely debunked by actual evidence, but it's like a little feel good, like, I don't know, security blanket for some people, even if it's actually worse, even if it makes things worse, they're still clinging to it. Now, I think mask wearing among adults in certain settings, particularly among unvaccinated people, there's evidence for that. For fully vaccinated people, I think at some point you have to just say enough is enough. It's going to become an endemic virus. We're going to have to learn to live with it. We can't have these uh, sort of interventions become permanent. We can't restructure our entire society indefinitely in an open-ended way around some of these measures. And I think that's especially true for children who have been so badly harmed, not by the virus, but by some of the incredibly irresponsible, non-science-based decisions made by adults throughout the coronavirus pandemic, refusing to accept the good news that kids are overwhelmingly protected from COVID by virtue of the fact that they are young. It's just the way that this virus works. Thank goodness. It's one of the few good things over the pandemic. And yet there are people steadfastly refuse to believe that to be true, no matter how much evidence there is. And there is a huge amount of evidence that that is the case, which is why you get statements like this. People talking about mask wearing in schools for children, which is not helpful, not useful, not effective already, but continuing that policy even after kids get vaccinated it is crazy. Then there's other stuff that's just like so irrational. Here's an example. I just got back from a vacation, went to Greece, went to Santorini. It was amazing. We'll talk a little bit about it later on. We'll talk about it tomorrow when producer Christine is back. On our way to Santorini, we were at the airport in Athens, capital of Greece. We were in the waiting area outside of the gate to get on the transfer flight to bring us to the island. And they have in the waiting area, you just picture an airport, right? All those rows and rows and rows of seating where you can sit there with your bag and grab a bottle of water and stare at your phone until they call you for boarding, right? You've all done that if you've been to an airport before. What they had, and I saw this in other places as well, they had physically blocked off every other seat with like this sort of almost this piece of tape with a warning, with a big sign on it, social distancing, it's for your own safety, social distancing, let's spread out, stop the spread, whatever. So they blocked every other seat off in the waiting area which is inconvenient because people want to sit. So instead they were sitting on the floor, they're standing, they're crowding in groups, whatever. But this is what they're doing for our supposed safety, blocking off every other chair. And then they say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to board you. Please get onto this uh, metal tube and we're going to put you in there like sardines, chock-a-block. Every single seat was full. So they have us separated in the building. Then we get onto the airplane and the separation is gone. (laughs) Masks required both places. There's just not science there. It's safetyism. It's safety theater. Now, airplanes are actually pretty safe. There have not been major outbreaks on commercial jets because they circulate the air. We know this, and yet they're still requiring fully vaccinated people like myself, even fully vaccinated people who have COVID natural antibodies as well, like myself, to wear a mask 
on a nine-hour flight, for example, for every second of the flight, unless you're eating or drinking, where COVID stops, as we know. I mean, that's science, right? When, when you're eating or drinking and your mask is off, then there's no COVID. But if you're not actively chewing or drinking, then COVID's back, so you got to put that mask on, even if you have all the antibodies and are not going to infect anyone because you also had to take a test that shows that you're COVID negative and you passed it. It's, it's crazyville. I understand people are just trying to make the best of it and make things work, but the lack of reason, the irrationality, the digging in on superstition is grating on me. It's grating on me more and more. And it grates on me most when you've got little kids as the guinea pigs for no reason based on no good data. And yet this is what we have from Rochelle Walensky and everyone. Get ready. Get ready, parents. They're going to mandate vaccines. That's the next fight. And then they're going to require masks even after your kid gets the shot. In a lot of places. That's what's going to happen. Probably not in Florida. Right. This is going to become a a polarized debate with major regional and state to state, even city to city differences. I saw the first lady and the president walk through a fancy restaurant in D.C. not wearing their masks. They were filmed. They were photographed. The White House defended it. But sorry, that's the policy. They tell us if you walk through a restaurant, you got to have the mask on for COVID. Once you sit down, it's fine. You take it off. But if you're standing up, indoor mask mandate, that's the law in Washington, D.C., even though the mayor who imposed it doesn't even abide by it. And they made up their excuses. Oh, no, it's fine. they, They wore the masks mostly when they needed to. Mostly isn't good enough. And yet they're forcing kids to do this stuff. All right, I've said my piece. A little update on woke tales when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. we got an update for you, and it is time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This is from earlier in the week, but I had to bring it to you. A vote by a New York City committee signals the end of a two-decade effort to remove a statue of Thomas Jefferson from the chambers of the New York City Council. This is the Public Design Commission. They voted unanimously, 8-0, to zero, to remove Thomas Jefferson from the chamber of New York City's council because some of the racial minority members said it made them uncomfortable, it's harmful, he was a slave owner, and therefore you got to get rid of the statue, and so that is happening. When we talked about Confederate statues, we said, all right, interesting debate, but beware the woke crowd And the slippery slope and the woke crowd seems to consistently affirm every slippery slope concern that is raised. And now Thomas Jefferson again getting the axe. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. 
Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Kicking off a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three hours between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every single day and in high demand. We appreciate that. Let's keep it growing together. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down just slightly today, down six points, closing at 35,603. Joining us now is Brett Bayer, chief political anchor at Fox News and, of course, anchor of Special Report every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. His hit podcast is Brett Bayer's All-Star Panel. He's also a best-selling author, and this is very exciting. He's got a new book out. We've been teasing it now for a number of weeks in his recent appearances. To Rescue the Republic is the title, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876. It is out now and debuted number two in the country on the New York Times bestseller list. Brett, welcome back to the show. Congratulations. Number two on the list. That's very impressive. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's yeah, it's exciting uh, for a, a history book uh, to be up that high is a, is a good thing. We're proud of it. Obviously, you know, still trying to get to number one, but uh, very happy with what the rollout has been. Yeah, no, it's it's a real achievement. And I had the great fortune, along with Adam, to have dinner with you recently with a few other folks. Hugh Hewitt put it together. We uh, had some time, of course, to get to know your lovely wife as well. And at the dinner table, over the course of the meal, your book came up. It was uh, forthcoming at that point. And you talked about some of the experience of writing this, because you've written a number of uh, historical bestsellers, right? Nonfiction, looking at crucial moments in history, three days here, three days there. We've had you on to talk about those best-selling books. This is about a pretty towering figure in U.S. history who yet feels at least to newer generations, I would argue, kind of mysterious, if not obscure. What made you settle on Grant as a figure that needed more exploration? Yeah, so for those other three books, the Three Days series, I, I looked at uh, moments in history that I thought were overlooked uh, or undercovered at the time, and that's Eisenhower's transition to Kennedy and his presidency, um, Reagan's final summit and a speech to Moscow State University that's overlooked, really, in the big scheme of things, and uh, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin's meeting in Tehran where they planned D-Day, and it's kind of overshadowed by the Yalta Conference. In history, so I wanted to find another three days template without the three days, and um, I, I looked at the Grant presidency. And everyone focuses on Grant as a Union general and the victorious general, and um, he's lauded for that. But when you talk about his presidency, I mean, a few things come up. One, he was a drunk. Uh, two, they had a lot of scandals and corruption. Uh, three. After Reconstruction ends, everybody blames him for ending it. Uh, And I thought, that's kind of simplistic. And you look back at that presidency, and it's really consequential. And had it not been for Grant, uh, we we would have been in deep trouble after the Johnson presidency. What would you say 
in your research was one of the more surprising things about Grant as the president that you feel like you've highlighted in your new book and that might shed new light on this man? Yeah, he was driven, I mean, really driven for equality and to keep the union together, to win the peace, to take Abraham Lincoln's torch and vision forward. Uh, When Lincoln is assassinated, uh, Johnson, the vice president, takes over, is inaugurated, and largely starts to undo and then undoes a lot of Lincoln's vision, especially when it comes to Southern blacks. Uh, Grant felt passionate about it, and through his push and standing up to Johnson as president, but then becoming president, uh, he pushes through the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, citizenship and the right to vote, uh, for blacks, he fights the KKK in the South, and uh, he really tries to hold the country together. I think the most surprising thing is the drive and the consequential nature of that eight years, uh, and then the grand bargain that he strikes in the contested election of 1876 that really the country was tipping back to a second civil war. Brett, I want to ask you one more question on the book. I remember when you and I were discussing Three Days in Moscow, one of your previous bestsellers. You had one dramatic vignette that you came on the air and you shared that really piqued my interest to read the book about these world leaders. I believe alcohol was involved. It's been a while since we had that conversation, but I remember that just sort of whet my appetite for more. Is there a dramatic vignette in this book, to rescue the republic, that might spark someone who may not have all that much interest in Ulysses S. Grant as a historical figure, that you might just tease a little bit that could maybe uh, bait the hook, so to speak, and get them uh, on board to go and buy a copy, get you to number one. That sounds good. Um, There's a number of them. Just very quickly, there's one that shows how humble he was as he's getting um, called up to Washington to get a fourth star as the commander of Union forces. He gets uh, Lincoln calls for him and he says, come up to Washington. They put him up at the Willard Hotel and he brings his son, Fred. Uh, He is not big. He's like five, seven, five, eight, about 130 pounds. He doesn't dress well. He really doesn't care about pomp and circumstance. He's the opposite of General Lee in that sense. He kind of wears old uniforms and muddy boots and an old hat. And he walks into the Willard with his son, and the clerk says, I'm sorry, we do not have any room for you. Um, and maybe maybe we have one small closet-type room on the top floor. And uh, he's not affected. He says, fine, that we'll, we'll take that. And he signs the registry, U.S. Grant and Son Fred from Galena, Illinois. And the clerk looks at it and turns white and runs and gets the manager, and they are escorted to the bridal suite of the Willard, because <laughs> uh, he's really the most popular general in the country. And finally, just quickly, the night of the assassination at Ford Theater, the Lincolns invited the Grants to come with them. Um, oh, wow. But Julia, Julia Grant was not too fond of Mary Todd Lincoln. There were not many women who were fond of Mary Todd Lincoln, but she was not. And they had already planned to go see their children in New Jersey. So as they're getting a carriage ride out of D.C., there is a ominous figure on horseback that is riding along with them, staring into the carriage. And um, now Grant, looking back, as he finds out that Lincoln is assassinated, 
thinks that that was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth. And Grant is bereft with guilt that he wasn't there, and he thought that he could save Lincoln's life if he was. But he does think that he was a target as well. Fascinating stuff. To Rescue the Republic on Sale Now by Brett Baer, already a runaway bestseller. Brett, you did your show special report last night from the Port of Los Angeles, and you were very kind to put up with my terrible joke calling your show last night special report. And I was uh, – I stand by it. I stand by that terrible joke. But you, in all seriousness, were there covering this very big problem about supply chains. What did you see firsthand in Los Angeles? What did you learn yesterday in your on-air and off-air conversations? Yeah, well, on-air is, first of all, it's massive, and it is just so impressive, all of these uh, containers that, hey, you know, these ships take five to eight days to unload, and uh, it's a massive operation. And then you look out just off the coast, and there's 68, 70 ships ready to come in. Now, what I learned off air was there are a lot of different elements to this, including warehousing, where some of these companies are now essentially charging, holding companies hostage to uh, charge them uh, before the the ship ever leaves China or wherever it's leaving from. Uh, They don't want to hold anything in the warehouse because, you know, they've got all of this stuff coming in. So now they're charging a premium. So that is then being turned onto the consumer. It is a serious, serious logistical chain that uh, I think we're going to find out more about the problems and uh, more about what the administration is doing or not doing uh, in coming days. You know, Brett, I'm not a guru on political messaging, but I do kind of have a bit of a hunch that the White House press secretary making a joke about People whining about their, you know, treadmills being delayed and, you know, their delivery time may not be the best approach here. Seeing the White House chief of staff retweeting an argument that inflation is a high class problem, uh, that does not really seem to match what we're now seeing showing up in poll after poll, including the new Fox News polling. Inflation is biting. Economic concerns and worries are absolutely real, persistent, deepening. There are two national polls now, the Grinnell College poll, the Quinnipiac poll that has the president in the high 30s overall, uh, in the 20s among independents. I wonder what you make of the White House messaging strategy so far, which seems to be some combination of, oh, these bad things aren't happening, and if they are happening, they're going to be transitory and and painless and relatively quick. And if they're not, it's not really our fault. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, was on saying, look, there's no quick fix to this. And then some of the dismissive, almost you know, joke-making stuff that I referenced, it doesn't seem like they've really figured out yet how to message this thing. And at some point, it's maybe not a messaging problem. It's a, a results problem. Yeah, it, it's bad. It's not um, – the polls are one thing, but it's really what people are feeling uh, and seeing. I mean, in California, every corner has gas, you know, 550. I saw one California area was at $7 and something a gallon. Um, you know, you start getting into that, it's real. It's happening. It's not transitory. And now you have pundits and financial analysts saying, you know, I didn't really think this was going to last this long. Um, yeah, people are feeling that. And when when that happens, there needs to be a sense of a lot of action, 
a lot of things are going on. They're not just talking about commissions that they chat about what's possible. It needs to be like moving. And I don't think that that's the sense that you get. And, you know, and then this Attorney General Garland appearance up on Capitol Hill today with mm-hmm. with the school and and all of that messaging, it's it's misplaced, too. Yeah, I mean, they are struggling on multiple fronts. I think it is fair to say, and that's not my view as a conservative, although I, you know, I'm not uh, terribly sanguine about this president, his performance. I think just as an impartial observer, one can look in, look at the results, look at the outcomes, look at the polling data and struggle to find any other way to put it or reach any other conclusion. Brett Bayer, as I mentioned, you were in Los Angeles last night at the Port of L.A. You did some events for your book out in Southern California at the Nixon Presidential Library, the Reagan Presidential Library, all very cool stuff. Where in the world are you today for Special Report, and what's on tap for the program this evening? That's great. I'm uh, in Dallas uh, and getting ready for a a couple of events in Dallas tomorrow. So we're going to be the gracious recipients of the hosting of the Dallas Bureau uh, tonight and tomorrow. And uh, I may actually get to an SMU game tonight. So uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, little side to rescue uh, Brett's week um, (laughs) and uh, and also uh, talk about the book tomorrow. The Mustangs, I believe, down there at SMU. Beautiful campus. I'm very impressed. Dallas is a great town. Have a great time there, Brett. Good luck and continued success with the book To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. Brett anchoring special report from Dallas at 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 Central in Texas this evening. Brett, thank you. Thanks, Guy. You bet. That's our colleague, Brett Bayer, here on The Guy Benson Show. Much more to get to here on the program. You don't want to miss it. Much more straight ahead. Stay with us. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. I want to play this because this is actual courage. Enos Cantor is an NBA player. He's with the Boston Celtics, and he'll occasionally speak out on political issues. I sometimes agree. I don't always agree. But he seems like a pretty level-headed guy with actual convictions and principles. And when that puts him crosswise in the eyes of some dictators around the world, including from his home country, he will still come out and say what's on his heart and on his mind anyway. And on his heart and mind this week is China and their oppression, the Chinese government's oppression of Tibet. Now, there are plenty of different things you can hit China on. Hong Kong, the genocide against the Uyghurs, covering up and lying about COVID. I mean, there's a long list. Human rights violations left and right. Tibet is one of them. Their oppression of the people of Tibet for decades now in the Chinese Communist Party. And Enos Cantor, clearly he's a smart guy. He knows that criticism of Beijing will come at a price. He looked around and saw what happened to Daryl Morey, for example, the former GM of the Rockets, for simply speaking out in favor of democracy in Hong Kong. He got slapped down. Morey did. The pro-democracy guy did. By the NBA establishment because it put money at risk. 
who's seen the embarrassing groveling of the NBA to communist China. Capitulations from other American companies like Nike and Apple. And unfortunately, the list goes on. Disney. So Enos Cantor seeing the huge firestorm that engulfed Daryl Morey on China and seeing how some of the biggest names in the sport refused to go along and in fact sided against Morey, effectively siding with Beijing to protect their financial interests, he knew what he was getting himself into when he said this in Cut 33. My message to the Chinese government is free Tibet. Tibet belongs to Tibetans. I'm here to add my voice and speak out about what is happening in Tibet. Under the Chinese government's brutal rule, Tibetan people's basic rights and freedoms are non-existent. They are not allowed to study and learn their language and culture freely. I say shame on the Chinese government. The Chinese dictatorship is erasing Tibetan identity and culture. He called Chairman Xi a brutal dictator. And the response was already swift. The Celtics game, the very next Celtics game, did not air, could not be seen, did not stream, was censored in China as retribution. We saw this happen to the Houston Rockets. And then all the apologizing and backtracking that ensued. He did not sound canter like someone who was prepared to back down. I'd be shocked if he does. We will see if there's backlash within his own league on this. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what the ramifications look like, he said these things with clear eyes, knowing exactly how risky it could be, and he did it anyway. That is bravery and courage so much more than what is so often hailed as bravery and courage these days when it comes to political slogans. So my hat is off. To Enos Cantor, good for him. I hope he doesn't back down. And pay attention to the people who criticize him. Keep an eye on that because they are telling on themselves. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, halfway through today's program. On this Thursday, glad to be back. Thank you very much for listening. We were talking about immigration a bit earlier in the show with Senator John Cornyn of Texas. And we've also discussed, really for weeks, now months, but also earlier today, the real struggles that President Biden is having on his job approval. And on the issue of immigration, for example, he is absolutely getting hammered. There's a new poll out from Grinnell College. It's a national poll conducted by Seltzer Polling, which is she's a very well-known pollster based in Iowa. And the numbers were across the board, basically as gruesome as we've seen in other polling from Quinnipiac, for example. Specifically on immigration, Joe Biden is at 27 percent approval. 58 percent disapproval. So he's underwater by 31 points on the issue. I would like to know who are these one in four Americans who approve 
of the border crisis, approve of what Joe Biden is doing at the border. They obviously exist out there. But it's pretty remarkable when you campaign as a uniter and a healer and a pragmatist and a moderate. And on one of your multiple crises just months into your presidency, you've got basically three quarters of the country disapproving of how you're handling that issue set. And how bad has it gotten? Well, there's a few bullet points that I would draw to your attention that I think illustrate the struggles. This from the Washington Post, again, is just staggering. Washington Post obtained data from Border Patrol looking at the number of apprehensions and encounters at the southern border in fiscal year 2021. It was more than 1.7 million. More than 1.7 million. That is the highest number in almost my entire lifetime, since 1986. It has been three and a half decades since it has been this bad. And it's this bad because the administration has made it this bad through their policies. Through their actions, their words generally mean nothing. As evidenced by the behavior of illegal immigrants who are getting the message profoundly and clearly every single day. And I want to remind you, and I've made this point before, but I'm going to underscore it twice in red ink. That 1.7 million number does not include the 400,000 estimated known gotaways over the same period of time, or really just since Biden took office. The former Border Patrol chief gave that statistic to Brett Baer in a recent interview. We played you that clip, 400,000, and that's people that we know of, right? Detected, but not detained because we lack the resources. Then there is some unknown universe of unknown gotaways. When you add up the confirmed encounters and people brought into custody in fiscal year 2021, plus the at least 400,000 known gotaways, setting aside the unknown gotaways, you are now well over 2 million people. 2 million. I mean, we are well past double the entire population of the home state of President Biden, Delaware. This is the state that he represented as one of their senators for decades in the U.S. Senate. You take every single resident of the state of Delaware, you double that number, and you're still not at the figure of illegal immigrants entering this country in fiscal year 2021, plus the gotaways since Biden took office. I'm not sure if that helps contextualize it in a useful way or an illustrative way. But to me, that is a gobsmacking statistic. It's not a trickle. It's not even a few hundred here, a few thousand there. We're talking over two million people. And this has been at virtually every single step incentivized, if not encouraged, by the Biden administration. Now, I think this might be an even more significant indicator of how terrible and how acute the issue has gotten. Because I will also quickly add as an aside, we still haven't gotten the September numbers yet. Right over the summer, it was supposed to be low due to seasonality, just too hot to come here. That didn't happen. Multi-decade highs, July, again in August. The initial reports are that the number is going to again be in the ballpark, the vicinity of 200,000 in September, expected to get even bigger in October. 
And the monthly encounters does not include the tens of thousands of known gotaways in each month, the bucket of data that we get. That's a separate number. But, of course, they needed to be added together over the summer. They need to be added together moving forward. These are combined a better picture of what the crisis truly looks like on the ground. So basically, based on, again, this is initial reports, basically status quo, a shocking, elevated, disastrous status quo at the southern border in September. And we mentioned the projection that it could get significantly escalated in the month of October. That was an NBC News story that we've covered here a couple times on the show. But to bring it back to the next point I was going to make, I think what really helps show how bad it's gotten and how serious of a political problem this has now become for the administration is the development in recent days. And this is something that we've been flogging now for weeks and weeks and weeks. We had Secretary Chad Wolf on the show talking about this. The remain in Mexico policy. Right, That was the Trump era policy that the Trump administration hammered out with the government in Mexico. That the vast majority of people who were coming to the U.S. illegally trying to claim asylum, many of those claims are bogus. Many people get in anyway. They're given paperwork to report at some point down the line, and a huge number of them never do. Right, This is part of the effective open borders framework over which Joe Biden has presided. The Remain in Mexico policy really mitigated that problem in a really meaningful way by forcing most of those people to remain south of our border as their claims were processed and adjudicated. They could not just show up and enter and be released. Biden got into office and said, nope, that's gone. That's a Trump policy. So no to the wall, no to remain in Mexico, even though I think it is to any fair-minded person, unless you are a committed, fanatical activist in some way or just a, a reflexive partisan. I think to any reasonable person, more walls, more barriers in places like Del Rio, Texas and elsewhere obviously would help with this problem. Obviously. I know the slogan over there is, well, walls don't work. Yes, they do. We all understand that they do. But they jettisoned that whole project, wasting millions of dollars a day in existing contracts, then finally terminated those contracts on the border wall, and then they got rid of Remain in Mexico just in a fit of peak. It's not like that was a signature campaign promise from Donald Trump. It was just a succeeding Border policy. And so, of course, it had to go. Had Trump's name on it. It was a Trump legacy. Who cares if it's working or not? They threw it in the garbage. And it has been so bad that the Biden administration has reportedly now finally decided that next month they're going to reinstate the remain in Mexico policy. Months into this administration, right? Late January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. They're going to go 10 months plus into this failure before they finally decide to simply put back into place a common sense policy that was working. And I think that they are getting so hammered in public opinion. I mentioned the polling data where they're in the 20s on immigration. They're losing ground even with Hispanics. I think they feel like they have to pander hit to Hispanics on illegal immigration. Turns out a lot of Hispanic voters aren't interested in just being open borders advocates. Clearly, the message has gotten through on the political side that this is no longer sustainable. And so they have to do what they hate more than anything. The Supreme Court gave an opening to do it. 
but they have to basically bite down on a stick and wince and scream into their pillows at night because a successful Trump-era border policy is returning. That, to me, is the ultimate tell that they are feeling enough political pain that they're being forced, their arm is being twisted, their hand is being forced in such a way that they have to do something that they really, really don't want to do. And, of course, they are infuriating their allies who have basically been calling the shots all along, like these left-wing open borders groups, and they are open borders groups. I think you can be in favor of certain policies like a path to legal status and the DREAM Act. I'm for those things. I'm less in favor of them now at this moment because of the border crisis. I think it would be insane to offer amnesties, even appealing or fair-minded ones in the middle of a crisis like this before we get our arms around it. But these activist groups are totally against everything, and they're already spitting fire. They're furious that Biden is kicking some people out of the country who are illegal immigrants under COVID rules because there is, of course, a pandemic underway even though you wouldn't know it from a lot of their policies down there. And they're also, of course, beside themselves that Remain in Mexico is coming back because it's not really about getting people safely across the border. It's not really about giving safe harbor to people who truly need it, who are being persecuted. It is simply about getting as many illegal immigrants into this country as possible. That is the goal of some of these radical groups that have increasing muscle in the Democratic Party and to whom the Biden administration has been kowtowing repeatedly. There's a story in Politico of just quote after quote, quote, we're done. We're done with this administration. There was a walkout that they're doing simply because the Biden people have gotten enough pain elsewhere that they're willing to cross the activists. We'll see if the activists are successfully able to bully them into more idiotic, anti-sovereignty, anti-law and order border policies. I didn't even mention, I know you guys covered it on this show earlier in the week, these midnight flights of illegal immigrants into New York and Florida in the middle of the night. And Jen Psaki said, well, it's not the middle of the night. It's just early in the morning. Like what, 1 or 2 a.m.? That's the middle of the night, Jen. If I called you at 1.30 in the morning, Jen, you wouldn't be saying, why are you calling so early? Like, what the hell are you doing waking me up so late? That's how normal people define words. I know they're relying on a technicality there. So uh, when I had actually seen the, the initial tweets, I was off on vacation. I saw a tweet that had these grainy looking photos in the middle of the night with airplanes and about American flights. And I actually got hopeful that these were rescue missions from Afghanistan. Honestly, that was my first instinct. And then I saw the actual caption of what was going on in the flights. I said, oh, no, this is the Biden administration flying illegal immigrants into the United States all over the country. Got it. That makes a lot more sense with this group. One more point that I want to make on immigration. And I always give the caveat because, again, I'm not a crazy immigration hawk. I think that people do sometimes get into xenophobic territory with some of the rhetoric that gets going on immigration. I don't think that that is good or helpful or the right thing at all. That's not how we should approach this. It is not true, for example, that illegal immigrants are a bunch of dangerous criminals. And to sort of gloss over that point or suggest otherwise, I think is wrong. It is also wrong to say any crimes that are committed by illegal immigrants can't really be discussed in a serious way or else you're feeding a xenophobic narrative. No, we can tell the truth without scapegoating entire groups of people. That is what we should do if we want to have serious adult conversations. And the victims 
of crimes at the hands of illegal immigrants and their families have every right to be upset because that is a fundamental failure of the federal government of the United States of America to keep people safe. If someone is here illegally and then they commit a violent crime against an American, that is completely unacceptable. And we should not simply close our eyes and pretend that it doesn't exist because it's just so unseemly. Because there's the story in Philadelphia. You've heard about it. The rape on a train with people watching and filming it which is just sickening. It's like, oh, I'm just going to whip out my phone and let this happen. See what happens. We can tweet about it later. It appears that the perpetrator of that crime is, in fact, an illegal immigrant who could or should have been deported years ago and who has reportedly, allegedly committed other crimes as well previously in the United States, including sex crimes. That person should never, ever be in the United States. This crime should have never happened. So it's not just about asylum seekers. It's not just about people who are being persecuted and need refugee status. That is a tiny fraction of our wider debate. And to pretend that some violent crime cannot be talked about depending on who the perpetrators are, like illegal immigrant felons are some sort of protected class in our political rhetoric, absolutely not. I wonder... If this border crisis starts to get a little bit less disastrous because of Remain in Mexico, I wonder if we'll see any of the credit given to the people who put that policy in place in the first place. I wouldn't hold my breath. But to me, that is one white flag from the White House. It is a concession to reality that their policies are failing and failing badly. And it's not being ignored, which is a political problem for them. And so at last, some changes are being made. The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts return to the guy benson show thank you for listening condoleezza rice the former secretary of state was the right-leaning guest host on the view yesterday and she is just such an impressive person i've been in the room with her a few times and she is brilliant and very classy very thoughtful relatively low bar but she outclassed everyone on that stage unsurprisingly the issue of schools And critical race theory came up at one point and this broader set of issues about race and indoctrination and some of the poison, frankly, that they are teaching kids. It's not so much teaching as it is indoctrination. And Condoleezza Rice had some thoughts on it. I want you to hear them. This is beautifully stated. Cut 28. The whole issue of critical race theory and what is and is not being taught. Uh, I come out of an academic uh, institution, and uh, this is something that academics debate. What is the role of race and so forth? And and let me be very clear. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't go to a movie theater or to a restaurant with my parents. I went to segregated schools till we moved to Denver. Mm -hmm. My parents never thought I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice, but they also told me that's somebody else's problem, not yours. You're going to overcome it. And you are going to be anything you want to be. And that's the message that I think we ought to be sending to kids. One of the worries that I have about the way that we're, we're talking about race 
is that it either seems so big that somehow white people now have to feel guilty for everything that happened in the past. I, I mm-hmm. don't think that's very productive. Or black people have to feel disempowered by mm-hmm. race. I would like black kids to be completely empowered, to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow this is a conversation that has gone in the wrong direction. And you can hear a murmur of approval from the audience, which is not a right-leaning audience at The View, at the conclusion. She just dismantled this woke, racist, frankly, mentality that is taking root among some on the left. And what an effective, smart, thoughtful communicator and messenger Condoleezza Rice was and is on these issues. More of that, please. We need much more of that. Well done. Hats off, Condi. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, we will talk Virginia. This race is fascinating for governor in the Old Dominion. Josh Krasauer on whether or not Terry McAuliffe is panicking. That is straight ahead. News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on a Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Happy to be back. Here in the U.S. and back on the air. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can listen live here 3 to 6 p.m. every weekday. Or you can catch the podcast for free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this happy hour, sponsored as always by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I've actually heard from quite a few of you in the listening audience in the last couple weeks. Folks trying out the Long Drink for the first time, sending me notes on social media about it. We love to see it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're expanding, where they're sold near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. We are joined now by Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, great to have you back. Great to be back, guys. I want to focus on the Virginia gubernatorial race. I find it really, really interesting, and I'm having trouble really getting a read on it that I feel confident about. Anecdotally, I will say there are Glenn Youngkin signs, more of them, cropping up around my neighborhood. I live in northern Virginia, one of the bluer areas of the entire state. I can remember seeing one Trump sign in my neck of the woods in 2020. There are growing numbers of Yunkin signs around my house within, you know, uh, maybe a one square mile radius. And that at least aligns with what some of the polling is now showing. Some of the public polling 
is indicative of a lead for Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, by three to five points. Some of the public polling has this race tied. There are reports that internal polls from the Republicans show Yunkin ahead. And Terry McAuliffe, for his part, the Democrat, seems to me to be someone who is not confident. The way he is behaving, the way he is running his campaign, at least suggests to me maybe that what we're hearing about the internal polls from the Republicans might also be showing up on the internal polls for Democrats in the race. Because I'm not sure if he's running scared or fully panicked, but he is not looking like someone confident that he's going to win in a state that Joe Biden carried by 10 points just a year ago. So my question for you, Josh, is this. When you think about the fundamentals of this race, and this is the way I've been sort of mulling it over, the fundamentals of the state benefit McAuliffe. This is a blue-tinted swing state that if McAuliffe wins, I think would just be fully at that point in the blue category. It is more heavily Democratic than it ever has been in modern American history. So those fundamentals favor McAuliffe. The other fundamentals of the race, the national environment, history, the way that Virginians typically buck the party in power, the economy, the president's approval rating, all those other things that you typically talk about when it comes to the fundamentals of an election are trending pretty solidly toward Yunkin and the Republicans in a struggle of those two sets of so-called fundamentals, Josh, which one matters more and which one do you think will be decisive? Well, let me add another fundamental rule that I always abide by when I cover politics. Actions speak louder than polls. And when a campaign in the final weeks of a race, a close race, is on the defensive, is explaining itself on a major issue in the race, that is a telltale sign that they're nervous, that they're worried that they're losing political ground. And that's what we're seeing right now in Virginia in the final uh, couple weeks of this race on the issue of education, where McAuliffe is now up after, about three weeks after uh, a gaffe he made in the second presidential and second gubernatorial debate about teachers playing a secondary role to school boards. Uh, sorry, parents playing a secondary role to school boards and administrators, and, and, and has been attacked by Youngkin for that remark. He's doubled down, tripled down, you know, defended that remark. Quadrupled down, yeah. Until, until this week, with his campaign up with an ad essentially explaining himself, saying he was taken out of context. I mean, number one, it's a remarkably long time to respond to an ad. I mean, it shows that the campaign, and I, 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 this is backed up from my own conversations with Democrats about how they viewed this issue. They didn't think it was a real issue. They didn't think education was really going to move, move many voters. And they took it for granted. And, and now we're seeing the numbers moving in Glenn Youngkin's direction, and it's largely because of these education attacks uh, that, that Youngkin has been airing. So two, three weeks later, now McAuliffe is playing defense. Now he's trying to clarify his remarks. That is not the sign of a confident campaign. That's not the sign. No, of and a I also don't know, Josh. How does that even work? Right? If you say something on the debate stage, you get absolutely battered by it in hundreds of ads, if not thousands of ads that have aired, especially in Northern Virginia and some of these key areas around the state. And throughout that bombardment, you're saying, "No, I stand by it. Of course, I meant it." And then three weeks later, you run a new ad direct to camera saying, oh, they're taking my words out of context. That's not what I really meant. The Youngkin people were ready for that. The Youngkin people immediately put out a video seven times that Terry McAuliffe said or reiterated or defended what he had said. To me, it's not only extremely defensive. I think it is weak and totally unconvincing as well. And even after that ad began airing, the McAuliffe ad on defense, 
he still gave an interview with, with Channel 7 locally in Washington, D.C., where he said the same thing as he did before. In other words, he's not saying the new, new line. He's using the old line that got him in so much political trouble. I mean, his campaign, I mean, my, 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 my analysis of it is it's in a bubble. I don't think it realizes that Virginia is not quite as favorable to Democrats as it was in last year's election. The Trump, he's running hard on the Trump issue. He's believing strongly that oh, by endless. talking about Trump and connecting Youngkin to Trump, and there's a pretty tenuous connection there, that that's going to change the dynamic. It's going to turn out Democrats to the polls. But you're seeing a combination of both Republican enthusiasm, moderate voters, independent voters starting to swing uh, the Republican way, largely because of the education issue, also because of the economy and, 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 and Biden's sagging overall job approval numbers. And the big worry for Democrats, too, is that you're, you're seeing Democrats that showed up at the polls in record numbers throughout the Trump White House days are not excited about this race. They're not turning out. They're not engaged. It's why President Obama is going to be coming to, to Richmond, Virginia over the weekend. Why Vice President Kamala Harris is making a trip in Northern Virginia this weekend as well. Uh, they need to get the base out. And they're now at, the, at this late stage of the election, Guy. They're in a really tough spot because they need to get the base out. But when you need to get the base out two, three weeks before an election, that means you're not winning over the middle of the road voters that, that, that often decide these races. So they're, they're now caught in between a rock and a hard place, the, the McAuliffe campaign. Usually you want to spend the end of the race winning over the moderate voters, winning over the persuadables, making the closing case. They're still worried about engagement and turnout. And, Josh, it kind of reminds me, I've been having some flashbacks watching this race play out. The negative flashback, the scary, traumatizing flashback is Mitt Romney of 2012. Oh, look, you know, we feel momentum. Look at these great rallies and these crowds because Young has been drawing very big crowds for a governor's race. He had a crowd of a thousand people the other night, which is pretty wild in northern Virginia. And I remember sort of these same kinds of vibes. Yunkin in some ways reminds me of Romney. I just am scarred from that race. And that could end up being an apt comparison. However, on the other side of it, the flashback I'm having is what year would have been? 2009? Scott Brown, Massachusetts, and more importantly, Martha Coakley, the Democrat in that race. Terry McAuliffe is giving off some Martha Coakley vibes in some of the ways that he kind of seems to be melting down and taking things for granted and incredibly arrogant. I want to play you this. This was from a local TV station in Northern Virginia, the D.C. area, over the weekend. Both candidates had an opportunity to sit down for an interview. McAuliffe left his interview apparently in a huff because he was mad that the journalists were asking him things that he felt he shouldn't be asked. And this sort of this sense of arrogant entitlement that often Democrats have about the media who typically side with Democrats. If the media doesn't play along, they almost take it personally. They treat it like a betrayal. In Cut 27, this is what aired in the D.C. suburbs over the weekend. If you watch those entire interviews on our website, we do want to point out that the Terry McAuliffe interview is shorter than our interview with Glenn Youngkin. That was not by our doing. Nick offered both candidates 20 minutes exactly, to be fair, for the interviews. McAuliffe abruptly ended Seven News' interview after just 10 minutes and told Nick that he should have asked better questions and that Nick should have asked questions Seven News viewers care about. That's what he said. So he cut this thing off halfway through because he was mad that there were questions not to his liking which he then said, oh, your viewers don't care. This was about education and CRT and that sort of thing. So he cut it off and said he should have asked better questions. Again, to me, Josh, that does not scream confidence from Terry McAuliffe. And I'll add something else, Guy. Terry McAuliffe, is a, to his credit, is a happy warrior. I mean, I, he's a likable guy. I've covered him in his last campaign. He, he's, he's a good, I mean, you know, at his best, he's a good candidate who's cheerful with the press who likes talking to even his opponents. He's not, he's not, he, that's not him. I mean, that's not literally the images you usually see of him. 
So the fact that he's getting so aggravated just by having to answer pretty basic questions that are coming up in, in this race, the fact that he's, you know, if you watch some of his cable news appearances, he, he's sort of saying, you know, jumbling his talking points and really kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Yep. Um, you know, I covered him. I was I was at an event with him last week. You know, he he wasn't as energetic. It was a little bit off his game, in my estimation. Um, then I remember covering him earlier in this race. And, and I wonder, I can't help but wondering, is that because he wakes up every morning and they hand him the internal polls and they look closer to what Monmouth found or Trafalgar found or what the RGA apparently has found, which is this exactly a dead heat or even the Republicans potentially ahead? I mean, we are less than two weeks out. We're getting awfully close. Last question, Josh, quickly. Have you seen this story? You mentioned Richmond, the capital city of Virginia, a few moments ago. Have you seen this story out of Richmond where the school district has decided to just give the school system a week off the first week in November? And they're saying it's for the mental health of the teachers and the faculty who apparently are under stress. So they wanted they're already giving them Election Day off. Now they're giving the entire week off for mental health reasons. This is a state where schools were closed for a year. And the mental health thing, I don't know how that's going to go over with, I don't know, working parents in the Richmond suburbs, which is a crucial area of the state. What do you make of this? It seems like a very strange move for them to do, especially right ahead of the election, because it almost fuels precisely what Glenn Youngkin's been talking about. I read one analysis from Dan McLaughlin at National Review wondering, are they trying to free up teachers and the education bureaucracy to turn out in force for Terry McAuliffe in politicking and, and voting on Election Day? What is going on here? Because if if you wanted to wrap up a gift to the Youngkin campaign and hand it to him, it would be something like this. So keep in mind, Terry McAuliffe kicked off his campaign last year in Richmond in front of a school that was closed and didn't say a word about school openings or school, you know, the issue of school closures at the time. That's telling, right? That was, it was a major issue going on last year. Everyone was talking about it, no matter what party you're from. And it was, even though McAuliffe said he was running on education and was standing in front of a Richmond area school, didn't come up, come up at all. Uh, now he's belatedly recognizing this is a hot political issue. Education is one of Yeah, so it's kind of come full stuff. circle. And I mean, in this little incident, this episode, this decision is illustrative of exactly what you were just talking about, Josh. We won't ask you for your prediction just yet. We'll have you back before Election Day to do that. But it is November the 2nd in Virginia, and it is tight. A white-hot race in the Old Dominion with the eyes of the country looking at this for so many different reasons, and few people are covering it any better than our guest, Josh Krasauer of National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Yeah, we're here on The Guy Benson Show. Last week, we had a fair amount of fun talking about Vice President Harris and that little video she made with the kids about NASA and space, where she seemed like she herself was perhaps in orbit, so to speak. And it turned out that the kids were child actors who had to book the gigs. We had Dana Perino here on the show, and Dana said it was like something straight out of Veep, the HBO show with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. And, I mean, yes, it was perfectly cringeworthy to be Veep-worthy. There's no question about that, and Dana was no doubt correct. And it feels like Kamala Harris, in some ways, is a living, breathing embodiment of Selena Meyer, 
the fictional character. New Selena now. That was one of my favorite slogans from the show. Man Up was another one. It is a profane show, but so hilarious and really captures the stupidity and incompetence and pettiness and egos in Washington, D.C. Kamala Harris does the things that the writers would write for humor purposes on feet, but she does them naturally and unironically. She is not a good politician. She's a very sort of strange and awkward person in a number of ways. And so there are two new videos having nothing to do with outer space or school children, two new videos that are hilarious. It was the vice president's birthday a few days ago. So there was a surprise party for her. This also had some shades of Lucille Bluth on Arrested Development. There was a surprise gathering for her. She walks through the door and before she fully enters the room, she yells out surprise, which is not how surprise parties go. You walk in, you are surprised as people yell surprise. And even if you know that it's coming, you want to at least pretend that you're surprised. So you wait and you feign surprise. You do not yell yourself surprise. But bless her heart, that's what the vice president did. The first voice, it's very quick, but the first voice you hear is Kamala Harris yelling surprise at her own surprise party. Cut 31. Surprise! (laughs) It's so awkward. And of course she burst into laughter because that's what she does. Under all circumstances, basically. Surprise! For me. (laughs) Happy birthday. Madam Vice President. And just in case that wasn't awkward enough, there was a presentation. What happened here, Wyatt? You sent me this clip. This is the president giving a gift to the vice president, and you feel like this has extremely strong Veep energy. Yes, Guy. I watched this video, and I just burst out in laughter because it's it's so cartoonish. Uh, but the president uh, went to the vice president's office and, and gave her flowers and a picture of them, both of them, together for her birthday. And it's just, it it screams beep. Okay. It's amazing. And I guess she was just gushing over this in a way that is perhaps less than fully authentic. Totally. Okay. Totally. Is, is this uh, is this a suggestion that Kamala Harris is a giant, big old phony? I've never heard that before. All right, let's listen. Uh, I think the video is probably a sight to behold. This is what it sounded like in Cut 37. <laughs> Oh, Joe. Oh, I'm very excited. Thank you. Huh. Thank you. Oh, look at that gorgeous. This is my favorite. Oh. Got it. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to hang this up with great pride. Thank you, Mr. President. This is my favorite. It's like when she was talking to the 13-year-old kids in the space video, but they were actually teenagers instead of five or six-year-olds, she's adopting sort of the same tone there with the president. This is my favorite. And it begins, of course, with that laugh. I was not fully prepared for that. A huge belly laugh from Kamala Harris. And then at the very end, Biden, you're welcome. Can we hear it one more time? I'm sorry. It's so, it's, and what's this music? It sounds like it is from. <laughs> really? Oh, Yes. Aww. 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 Thank you. Huh. Thank you. Oh, look at how gorgeous. This is my favorite. 
Do we have the Veep theme song to bump out with, like the like the closing credits, which often featured just extremely cringy moments? Uh, let's bump out with that if we can. She is just a font of entertainment, just not in the way that she thinks. That's the vice president of the United States. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com You are listening to The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Thank you very much for doing so. Earlier in the program, at the very start of today's show, we were joined by U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. We got into a lot of issues with him, immigration, spending, schools, and more. Here's a taste of my discussion with Senator John Cornyn, Republican from the Lone Star State. I want to get your reaction first and foremost, Senator, to a story that broke just within the last few hours this afternoon. This is a scoop from the Washington Free Beacon, and we actually got a hint that this was the case from a guest last week, Christopher Rufo from the Manhattan Institute, who's been really closely watching all issues related to critical race theory. There was this controversy, I'm sure you're aware of it, with the Justice Department putting out a memo and the Attorney General Merrick Garland basically intervening at the DOJ and the FBI on the supposed issue of threats or violence at school board meetings. And this was at the behest, it seemed, of the National Association of School Boards, this organization that had written a letter to the Biden administration asking for this type of insertion, this type of intervention because of what they called or described or framed as some sort of crisis. And what we are now learning – Not only is this sort of an outrageous attempted overreach and federal involvement in something that would be at worst a local issue and there's not a lot of evidence of this type of threat even at the local level, let alone rising to a federal threat to justify FBI involvement. But what we are now uh, learning and as the Washington Free Beacon is reporting based on emails, there was collusion between this school board's organization and the Biden administration ahead of time before the letter went public. Let me just read to you the opening lines of this piece and then get your reaction. The country's largest school board association collaborated with the Biden White House before sending a controversial letter calling on the FBI to investigate parents as potential domestic terrorists, according to previously unreported emails. Those emails obtained by Parents Defending Education through public records requests and reviewed by the Washington Free Beacon, revealed that the NSBA's president and CEO sent the letter to Biden on September 29th without approval from the organization's board. The letter said that some of the acts from some parents at school board meetings across the country could be considered a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. The emails also show that the White House asked the association for examples of threats against school board members days before the attorney general created a task force of officials from the FBI and the Justice Department to determine how to prosecute alleged crimes at school board meetings. The letter makes clear that the White House was aware of this letter before it was released, while raising questions about whether the White House colluded with the association on the letter to prompt federal action. Senator, this was already, I think, an alarming story, and now it looks like this was some form of collaboration or collusion between the Biden team and this group to try to paint parents as domestic terrorists, even invoking the Patriot Act 
This is not looking organic, sir. This is looking planned. Yeah, Guy, this is unfortunately entirely consistent with the way that the Biden administration and the radical left have been dealing with their their opponents, people who have different points of view, trying to intimidate them, threatening to use federal authorities as, in, as you point out, if this was, if there was anything here, this should be handled at the local level. The FBI and certainly the United States Attorney General and Department of Justice would not in the first instance uh, be weighing in. But you may recall that the President Biden also asked uh, the Director of National Intelligence to report on domestic violent extremists. And then, uh, you know, the question became, who are these people? Are these people exercising their rights under the First Amendment to protest, uh, to gather, to associate with one another? Or were these people committing acts of violence? I just think this is, the, this is cons- entirely consistent. And in this instance, trying to use federal authorities to silence uh, the administration's critics. And uh, it's entirely inappropriate. The attorney general is testifying literally right now live before the House Judiciary Committee on the Senate side of things. Based on this report and some of these actions, do you have questions for the attorney general? Absolutely. I I sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and uh, today we were supposed to get uh, Secretary Mayorkas of the Department of Homeland Security. And you can imagine I had a lot of questions for him about the Biden border crisis. He tested positive for COVID-19, so that's been delayed. My full conversation, that entire interview with Senator Cornyn, available at GuyBensonShow.com, also on the free podcast, no charge to you, on demand the entire show every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, we're going to tell you a little bit about my vacation to Greece and a wild day of travel. I can't believe I'm, like, functional today. We'll explain, though, when we come back. Stay with us. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm back In the big chair behind the big microphone after a few days off, we mentioned this late last week, I was over in Greece with Adam and some friends, and it was absolutely spectacular. It was so fun, and I want to tell you all about it, except producer Christine would be very upset if we got into the whole vacation recap without her. She was also on vacation this week. She'll be back tomorrow. She was down in Florida. She was supposed to be in Aruba. They booked everything, and then she freaked out and melted down and had a huge panic, and they canceled the entire trip. She went to Florida instead. So we will get her thoughts on her vacation tomorrow. She will be curious, Christine, about Greece and Santorini, and so that's something perhaps to look forward to. But I do want to just address a few quick things that may not make curious Christine in the home stretch on a Friday tomorrow, and we'll do that now. Number one, the travel back was a bear. Now, I knew I was getting myself into this. I was not going to take the entire week off. Some of my other friends, I'm actually jealous. There were eight of us total, three couples and two singles. The two ladies are now in Rome. They're going to spend three or four days in Rome. One of the other couples went to Athens and spent a few days eating through Athens and going to the ruins and some of the structures that are so famous there. Another couple went on to Dublin and will spend a few days in Ireland. We came right home. 
because I wanted to get back on the air. Also, I've got a wedding that I need to go to this weekend in California. So we'll mess up some more time zones in my brain. My body is going to be like, what the hell are you doing to me? Where am I? What time is it? What is going on? However, I do want to say I think I was able, and I'm going to knock on wood, I hope and I think that I more or less beat jet lag on this trip because we had a red-eye flight over to Europe on Friday night, and I slept for, I would guess, five, five and a half hours of that flight. And then I napped on the connecting flight just a little bit, and then I stayed up until bedtime on Saturday, went to bed probably around 11 p.m. on Saturday, local time, and then just was adjusted. I woke up in the morning and I was fine. On our return yesterday, I made it a point not to sleep. I really wanted to. I'm good at sleeping on planes. But I knew that if I could stay awake all the way through, we would get home in the early evening, ended up being around 9.30 or 10 p.m. that we actually got through the door. I stayed up. I watched the end of the baseball game with the Braves taking a 3-1 lead in the NLCS. Congratulations to our listeners down in Atlanta at Extra 106.7. I know you're yelling at me, no, it's not over yet. They have to win another game, I know, but so far, so good, right? Anyway, so I watched the end of that game. Went to bed, slept nine hours, got up this morning, and I'm feeling normal. So I think I played this relatively well. But yesterday was not a pleasant day of travel. Adam actually set a stopwatch on his phone from door to door, leaving the door of our rental at 6.30 a.m. local time until we walked through the door at our own house last night, 22 hours and seven minutes, something like that, of consecutive travel. Four airports, three flights, three different airlines. And if you actually do the math and the time zones, and I think I did this right. Don't quote me, though. Math is not always my strong suit. I try. I was up at 6 a.m. local time on Wednesday morning. That was 11 p.m. Eastern time here in the U.S. So I woke up at 11 p.m. Eastern time and went to bed just after 11 p.m. Eastern time, 24 hours later. And the entire amount of sleeping that I did in between was about 60 to 90 minutes collectively in those 24 hours. So that was a lot. I would say it was worth it because the trip was spectacular. We did Santorini to Athens first thing in the morning. That was on Ryanair, which is a discount airline over there where they charge you for everything. It's like you're standing in line at check-in. You sneeze. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. That's seven euro. They charge you to print out your boarding pass. That's a real thing. Anyway, we flew there to Athens. Then we had a layover in Athens. We got on Lufthansa to fly to Frankfurt, Germany. We were slightly delayed on that flight, which was giving me heartburn because we had a pretty close connection in Frankfurt to get on United Airlines, which is my airline, and fly home for the long-haul flight nine hours. So we landed. We got off in Frankfurt. We were in the A gates, had to get to a Z gate. I'm not kidding which actually sounds worse than it actually was, but we had to hightail it. We were walking. It was like power walking to the point of running. 
We had to quickly go through a little bit of passport control to get into the Z terminal for international stuff. Then they had to check our papers again, check our COVID tests, because we had to get COVID tests to get back into the United States. We had done that on Wednesday morning. Negative, thank goodness. I mean, I have all the antibodies at this point because I had COVID and I'm vaccinated. We had to show our vaccine cards. We had all this paperwork. They checked all that. We got to the gate as they were calling boarding group one, which was our group. So we spent like maybe 45 seconds standing at the gate before we then walked down the jet bridge and got on the plane. It was that close. And then took that flight. I watched, I did some reading. I watched multiple movies. The goal of which was to just keep me awake. I was talking to one of the flight attendants. She brought me Coke Zeros, of course. She offered me, towards the end of the flight, some coffee to keep me awake. I said, no, I don't want to have any coffee because I want to be able to fall asleep once I get home. And I think, again, I don't want to take a victory lap because cut to me tonight in bed, unable to fall asleep for hours on end. That could happen. So I don't want to declare victory here, but I think I pulled it off. And then we shoot it all to hell and I fly to California tomorrow. (laughs) It's crazy. Now, we will not get into too many details about the trip, as I mentioned, but there is one question that Quiet Wyatt has. Curious Wyatt, if you will. He saw a tweet that I posted while in Greece and Wyatt, you were perhaps puzzled by one particular part of this trip. Yes, Guy. I saw you tweet about going to McDonald's when you were in Greece. And so I just have to know, why did you decide to go to McDonald's? This is a fair question. Why, in the paradise of Santorini, surrounded by fresh seafood and authentic Greek and Mediterranean cuisine, why would I go to McDonald's? Well, I'll tell you. I ate nothing but fresh, amazing Greek food the whole time, and we can perhaps discuss some of it tomorrow. I'm big into food on vacations, food and drink. They've got some really nice wines in Greece as well. In any case, on Tuesday, Tuesday night, Tuesday was probably my favorite day of the whole trip for reasons that we will discuss for sure tomorrow. But at the end of the day, we were all just flying high. We were feeling great. And we decided, you know what, let's go out. It was sort of our equivalent of a Saturday night because the next day was our last day, at least in my case, on the vacation. Then we're going to come back. And so this was the last real night where I didn't have to be up early the next day. So we got back from our big day out. We quickly showered and changed. And then we went back out into Thera, which is the, the major city, if you can call it that, in Santorini. We went to a bar that had a little bit of a club vibe. There was music, a lot of American music. There was dancing. I may have had enough alcohol to facilitate me dancing a little bit. That may have happened. We met some other Americans there. We just had a great time. We were there later than we expected to be there. And they had, they have weird happy hours. They're like, oh yeah, 9 p.m. to midnight is happy hour. What? So people were ordering cocktails, and they were showing up with two of each cocktail. Like, oh, yeah, it's buy one, get one free, even if you didn't ask for it. Here's two cocktails. So as you imagine, you might envision this, that that leads to people feeling really good. And then the car was picking us up to bring us back to our place. 
I want to say at like 1 a.m. And the meetup was a McDonald's because that was like the closest place where it's easy for a car to meet you before you get into like the cobblestone side streets. So we were at this McDonald's. We had a few minutes. And as sometimes is the case when people have been drinking, there was some hunger involved as well. And McDonald's just seemed like a good idea. Who doesn't want some McDonald's fries and some nugs? So we went in there and there were some there was a British couple, probably in their 20s, and it was her birthday and they also had been out drinking or dancing or whatever, and they were getting thrown out of the McDonald's because they didn't have masks. They were showing they were trying to show their vaccination cards, but that wasn't good enough under these rules or whatever. So they were getting thrown out. So I took it upon myself to get their order and treat them to what they wanted because they needed McDonald's. It is a special relationship between the United States of America and the United Kingdom. And damn it, I was going to get them what they needed. And I did. They offered to pay me back. I said, no need. This is on us, the United States. We got chatting. And guess what? They subscribed to the podcast. Now, they might wake up the next morning like, what the hell did we just subscribe to? That's fine, but they will wake up satisfied because of their double cheeseburger and their fries. So we split some fries and some McNuggets, and that is why at 1 a.m. we went to McDonald's. And I apologize for nothing. It was the right call, and then we went back to fresh fruits and fish and all of that the next day. Overall, it was very healthy food-wise. I mean, not like health food necessarily. There's so much walking. For a vacation, it was a pretty healthy trip. Too many drinks and then McDonald's, probably not the high point health-wise, I will admit. But we were on vacation and you treat yourself. Is that a satisfactory answer, Wyatt? Yes, yes, I believe you. I didn't. I, I, at first, I was just very confused and not sure why, but now, now I get it. Okay, permission granted. I'm glad that I have met with your satisfaction. And with that, you know, I will just say this. I think producer Christine would be proud of me. I feel like producer Christine may have had a drunken McDonald's trip or three or 18 in her past. And by past, I mean last few weeks. It's entirely plausible. Maybe we'll ask her about that. When she returns tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, back here, same time, same place. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.